0: While Kathy and I and Ruthie were away visiting our son and his wife in Detroit, we enjoyed great travel, restful times, played lots and lots of games of ticket to ride, uh, and also endured an ice storm, and it was all delightful. We're back in Revelation 14, as Ed just read, and I'm so thankful to take you into this passage with the help of the Holy Spirit, but I feel and keenly his, a need for his aid at the moment. Would you pray with me once again? Lord, I come resting. I come into your presence as my Sabbath. You're my rest. It's not a day, it's you. And I pray that every person who hears my failings and fumblings will hear a better sermon than the one I preach. From the voice of your Holy Spirit unfolding Revelation 14 to them. And that even though we are to speak of the most sober realities in the Bible, which are the most sober realities in the universe, you would grant rest to every person who hears. Sweet, deep, steady, real rest. For those who have no rest in Jesus Christ, may this be the day of their salvation. Use your word to awaken faith in the hearts of those who hear. Faith to rest now, and if there is no rest, faith to come and find rest in Jesus Christ for the very first time. Achieve many miracles through your word, I pray, above and beyond what I know to ask. In Christ's name I pray it all. Amen. God's wrath is not bad news, it's good news. God's wrath is not bad news, it's good news. His wrath at work now in the world is mingled with, mixed with mercy. And everywhere God's wrath is on display, he's sending it into the world to say, I'm here, your sin displeases me and separates you from me. Let my wrath against your sin be an opportunity for you to Open your eyes, turn from your sin, and flee to me for salvation. That's what God's wrath is all about in this world and in this time. God is saying three statements through his wrath. Here they are. The gospel shall go out to all the nations. I want everyone to hear. Two, God shall cause all evil on the earth to collapse. Not one evil structure on the earth will be left standing when Christ returns. Number three, God's wrath through mercy says, the glory of God will be vindicated by the eternal suffering of those who reject it. The glory of God will be vindicated by the eternal suffering of those who reject it. Since these three statements are true, The question you have to ask yourself while I am laboring through this glorious, powerful passage of Scripture is: whose am I? Whose am I? Whose mark is on my forehead? Whose mark is on my hand? Whose am I? If you say, I'm my own man, I got that figured out already, I'm my own person, you deceive yourselves. No one is their own person. Everybody's wearing one or the other mark. Everybody's got the mark on their head and on their hand that says, I worship the beast. Why? Because the beast says, you have to worship me in order to engage in the economics of buying and selling. We've already seen that. You're rejected. You're dismissed. You're marginalized. You're deleted. You're erased. You're nothing unless you get the mark of the beast on your hand and on your forehead. You are owned by the beast. You fear the beast. You then worship the beast so that you can move and, and, and get into Rome and into the culture and buy and sell and be somebody in this world. Be a decent employee, be a decent father or mother, a, a decent business person or leader. You've got to get in and you've got to get the right marks and you've got to use those marks for buying and selling. That's who owns you. That's who possesses you. That's whose you are. Or you have rejected the false worship of the mark of the beast and you have said, I receive the mark on my forehead of my father in the name of his son, the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And I receive the mark on my forehead and hand because I'm his and I love him and I will worship him. No matter what commands come to me to tell me to worship other, I will worship Christ in Christ alone. Is that true for you? Is that true for you? Do you worship Christ in Christ alone? Do you wear the mark on your forehead and on your hand? Someone will ask you one day, prepare yourself with resolve right now. I am ready to say that I serve Jesus Christ alone. Ready your heart right now. Teach your children to ready their hearts. There will be pressure against you. There will be pressure for you to not worship Christ. There will be pressure for you to just keep your love for Christ to yourself as if it were a private religion or keep it inside the walls of your church building so we don't have to hear it. We don't want to hear about Jesus in public. We don't want to hear about Jesus in the workplace or online. We don't want to hear about the glory of Jesus in, on the floors of Congress or other bodies of political decision-making. We don't want Christ to come out of the closet This passage will reveal whether you are Christ's and you boldly and in all settings and in all ways will proclaim Christ or whether you are owned and identified and possessed of another spirit in which Christ may be a part of your life in a distant arm's length sort of way But when you really want to get things done and you really want to get down to what you think is reality, you will say, let's figure out how to buy and sell. There are many delusions in your heart vying for the hearing of their voice in your mind and in your soul and in your spirit. There are delusions in our culture that want to tell you the only way you can get along in reality is if you Take the mark of the beast upon your hand. In the final day, in the final judgment of God, it will be plainly revealed whose you are, who owns you, who possesses you, who marks your identity. I stand before you with joy in my heart telling you, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and I bear his mark. James the Apostle says the Word of God is like a mirror we look into and see ourselves correctly. In fact, Paul David Tripp in his book Dangerous Calling says it's the only way to see yourself correctly. Every other person and every other voice in the culture and in your heart is like a carnival mirror telling you you have a three three foot long neck. Those distortions we often collect and gather around ourselves. Who can I get to lie to me? That's the essence of sin. Who can I get in my life to lie to me? That's the essence of sin. Scripture alone, the voice of Jesus Christ alone, in his word alone, tells us the truth of who we are, and it's powerful. And here in this passage, this will tell us exactly who and whose we are. And the way it will happen is three angels will fly mid Air, as it were, flying through the open air above our heads in this sanctuary or, or above the roof of this building in midair over Duluth and Superior and the Northland. Angels are flying, and they proclaim three victories of God, the victory that God is and shall achieve. This is happening now, and it will happen in its fullest final climax in the future, not too distant from now. The first victory that the first angel proclaims is, the eternal gospel shall go out to all the globe. The second is proclaimed by the second angel, God shall cause all evil structures on the earth to collapse. And the third, proclaimed by the third angel, God's glory shall be vindicated by the eternal suffering of all those who reject it. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. The first angel proclaiming the first victory of God. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. That word overhead means midair with an eternal gospel. So here's an angel flying with the gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. This is how the gospel gets preached to the nations. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. You see how we're at near the end of the world and the end of this time? The hour of his judgment has come. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water here's the God who made all things he's the creator God and owns all things and all creation is meant to cause us to fear him to worship him and give him glory but the essence of sin is to exchange the glory of God for the glory of created beings and so we love bodies and and buildings and rivers and spirits behind lakes and mountains, and spirits behind fire, and power, and influence, and and wealth gathering. We love the divinity that we can imbibe into nature and say, I'm going to worship nature, or the things of nature. In other words, we've said, God, I reject you, and I want to worship the things of my body, or the things of your created world. Romans 1 calls that the great darkness exchange, and it's the essence of sin. Jesus says, I'm going to send angels proclaiming the gospel throughout the whole world to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and I'm going to call them to call the nations to repentance. Stop worshiping nature or the spirits that lurk behind nature. Stop worshiping your body or the things that you can do with your body, or the wealth that you can amass. Stop worshiping anything God created and worship God, the one who is the creator. Jesus said in Matthew 24, my gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, shall be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end shall come. And that's exactly what's happening in heaven right now. We saw in Revelation chapter 4, all the inhabitants of heaven The creatures, the elders, all the angels, all the entire gathered triumphant church singing, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That same picture of the church worshiping the glory of God is meant to be our life experience right now do you love the glory of god more than every other glory that's a massive question of diagnosis for your soul right now do you love the glory of god more than you love every lesser glory all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god romans 323 says so this messenger angel goes into all the nations And he's representative of the churches, isn't he? We know wherever angels are in the book of Revelation, they're representing churches, just like in Revelation 1 and chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor, they had angels. Here the angel represents us, faithful believers, who are going to do exactly what the angel is doing until Christ returns. The angel goes to the nations and they say, you're fearing the beast, you have the mark of the beast, and therefore you're giving glory to the beast. Stop, repent, and turn. Fear God give glory to God, worship God. I tell you, my friends, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. The nations are going to say to us Christians, you know, you Christians are hated. You know, you Christians are going to be killed. You know, you Christians are going to be killed. And you're calling me to repent of my gods and my, my worshiping the beast when I'm living in the lap of luxury and full of all the world's comforts, you're telling me to give all that up in order that I would come join you and get killed? Yes. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God and give him glory. The hour of judgment has come. The hour of judgment is upon the world very, very, very soon. You can feel the intensity rising, can't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The whole Bible is leading up to the, to the very crisis this passage exposes. Whose are you? Whose mark is on your head? Who owns you? Who do you bow the knee to with fear and with worship and with glory and say, I'm yours? There's no straddling. There's no feet on both sides. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Fear God and give him glory. That's what the angel says, that's what all those in obedience to the command of the gospel say with the angel to all the nations, fear God and give him glory. Duluth, Superior, the Northland, fear God and give him glory. St. Paul, Minneapolis, all the suburbs, Rochester, all the greater Minnesota communities, fear God and give him glory. All the leaders in Washington, all the leaders in large cities across the United States, fear God and give him glory. All the leaders around the world, in every language, tribe, and tongue, translate this sentence, fear God and give him glory. Angel number two declares victory number two. God shall cause all evil on earth to collapse. Verse 8, another angel a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, great as great in sin she who made all nations drink the wine literally of the madness of her sexual immorality it says passion in the esv it's not a strong enough translation of the greek word it's better translated madness fallen fallen is babylon the great she who made all nations drink the wine of the madness of her sexual immorality word here for sexual immorality is pornea. It's a broad word from which we get fornication, but it means all manner of sexual sin outside of the gift of sex inside a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. All other sexual deviation is pornea, sexual sin, but that's not even the main limitation of this word here. This word is used symbolically to refer to all the adultery and unfaithfulness of the world against God to whom they owe complete allegiance and faithfulness. That's what is referenced by the symbolic city named Babylon. Babylon was guilty of sexual sin, but oh, Babylon was guilty of so much more than mere sexual sin, as evil as it is. Babylon was guilty of all manner of idolatry and unfaithfulness to God, and This passage is saying, to all the world, repent of your acts that put you into the citizenship of the city of Babylon. Repent of all spiritual adultery and idolatry. Repent of anything that would draw you away from the Lord. Repent of anything that would try to divide you. Do you see how the word made is used in verse 8? she made the nations to drink the wine of her passion, of of her madness for sin how does that happen you see what's going on it's it's almost like it's almost like there's a, a, a woman inviting everyone to follow her. This is a picture of a woman here. It's, it's a symbolic image. Men are doing this, obviously. But the image is of a woman who says, I'm going to seduce you. Come over with me, and I, would, I, and I will give you pleasure if you follow me. And your pleasure will be maximized if you just drink this. If you just drink this. And, and when you begin to drink it, you say, wow, that's really good. Can I have some more? And you keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking, and you don't realize that it's, very, it's a sweet poison that you're drinking. And so the drinking that you're doing willingly, she made you do, and yet it's a kind of insanity. That's what sexual sin is like. That's what addiction to pornography and sexual sin is like. It's a madness. It changes the ability to think clearly. It changes and removes the ability to to reason clearly. It changes the moral capacity to be horrified at sin. And soon you begin to not only protect sin and run away from anybody who holds you accountable for it, but you actually begin to try to call it a virtue. You lift it up and you say, oh, this is good. This is very good. It's it's madness. It's dark and evil and Babylonish and filled with guilt and shame, and it leads to loneliness. There is loneliness in the church. There's loneliness and guilt and shame in the church because the madness of Babylon's sins have, have gotten their wine bottles into the life of believers, and those wine bottles are being emptied. There's a pressure Upon believers who are trying to repent of this, oh, there's great grace and repentance if you come and repent of no matter what sin you've uh, committed, you will be forgiven. There's a pressure on those who want to turn from this and say, I want to leave this life and leave this way of thinking and leave this madness. I want to come out of insanity into sanity and I want to follow Christ and reject sin and its temptations. There's a pressure that comes against you when you do that. There's a pressure... Are you feeling that pressure from, from work, from spouse, from friends, from family, from your past, from your secrets, from the devil? Are you feeling that pressure not to rise up in boldness and say, there's coming a day when angels will fly overhead declaring, fear God, give him glory, and fallen, and fallen is Babylon, and there's a third angel, it gets worse and better. You th- you smell the arrival of the smoke of the torment, and you say, this is a smoky place. I'm smelling the smoke. I'm smelling, it's almost like hell's door got propped open, and I'm smelling the smoke. And so I'm going to fleece in. Some of you right now are going to say to yourself, while I'm walking through my lame sermon here on this glorious passage, you're going to say to yourself, I'm going to forget about what I'm hearing him say, and I'm going to do business with the Lord. I've got sin that I'm not ready to be doing while the Lord comes back and and sees me. I don't want to be doing this when he arrives. So I don't want to be doing this at all, ever. And you leave that with him. You give that to him, and he'll take it from you and he'll forgive you for it, and he'll heal you and cleanse you. I promise you. No society will understand and begin to ease its own ills and heal its own madnesses and curb its own violence and preserve its own peace until it first comes face-to-face with God's biblical definition of sin. All true and lasting spiritual awakening and revivals include a recovery of the knowledge of our sin before a holy God. If you're under pressure, turn to the one who pressures you and say, I am so sorry to disappoint you, but I must serve Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior, my God and my first allegiance. All others come second. I only wish that you could join me in following him. Have you been lied about? Have you been mistreated, abandoned? Have you been gossiped about and spoken of unjustly, give your pain to Christ. This promise of victory that fallen, fallen is the evil structures of Babylon means Christ achieved victory for you on the cross, and it means Christ will come back and apply that victory to your life, and all persons will see the truth. It will be shouted from the rooftops, as Luke 12 says. You do not need to be your own reputation manager. You do not need to pursue vengeance on your own. When God brings vengeance, it will come in great weight upon those who have wronged you for whatever they have done. And you will not look upon that justice with gloating, but with sorrow. You will bow and collapse on your knees before the Lord and say, that same justice I deserve but for the grace of God. Angel number three, proclaiming victory of God number three, is this, God's glory shall be vindicated by eternal suffering of those who reject it. Plain as can be from verses nine through 11. And another angel, a third followed him, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, you see its identity. Whose are you? That's what this is all about. Whose are you? He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. You want wine? You want wine. You want the wine that makes you escape and forget and go mad? You want the wine of insanity? You want the wine of sexual passion? You want the wine of sin? God has wine for you. Verse 10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is wine with the mercy taken out. That's what this means, full strength. That's wine with the mercy taken out. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. How long does that torment last? Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. It can't possibly mean annihilation. It can't. Torment never means annihilation. It always means torment. And the smoke going up forever and ever can't mean mere annihilation. And having no rest day or night can't mean annihilation. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. You see the 144,000, the church complete and triumphant in verses 1 through 5, had the mark of God the Father on their forehead and Christ the Son on their head. Here, these who have rejected the glory of God willfully, repeatedly, even though the angel flies midair right up to the last minute, You preach the gospel to a wayward nation and world right up to the last minute. That's the kind of mercy of the God we serve. Right up to the very last moment when God is knocking on the door, he's asking, who are you in there? Are you against me as one who hates my glory and has rejected me? Or are you my beloved child who loves me and can't wait for me to come in? Which are you? Who are you? That's the door God knocks on and the question he asks. Right up to the last minute, the angel with the gospel message flies in power over this city and over the cities and villages and homes and hearts of the world. And he says, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Even though right behind him is a mighty army of God's torment-wielding wrath. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's a reference to Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We believe, because the Bible teaches, that one day God will have a just and fair judgment of those who have hated him, his son and his spirit and his gospel and all that is good and have rejected God and have pursued wickedness and evil, though they've been offered every opportunity for repentance. All wrath happening now is evangelistic. It's mingled with mercy. But that day, it will be poured full strength out into the cup of God's anger and the wicked will, in fact, be made to drink. They will happily receive it. Think of this with me God is an infinitely precious God. All sin against Him is an infinitely heinous crime against His infinite worth. Therefore, the punishment for sin against an infinitely heinous crime is an infinitely long torment. No one rose up in cries of injustice this week when the judge declared two consecutive life sentences for a man found guilty of killing his son and wife. No one rose up and said, Injustice! Hardly any appeal will survive. No one will rise up at the very end and say, Injustice if God in infinite glory and worth is rejected with an infinitely heinous crime and therefore an infinite sentence of torment forever and ever is pronounced. No one will cry injustice. How do we know that? We know that because of this glorious reality. Jesus said to the disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said the stupidest thing they ever said in their lives. We are. Yup, pass the cup. He hangs on the cross dying, not as the two thieves died on his right and left, They died as mere men. Here the Son of God having never sinned without guilt, without shame, without any wrath of God deservedly upon Him for He had never sinned. He who knew no sin became sin. He took upon Himself the eternal torment of all who would believe in Him. Forever. How much wrath rested on Christ's shoulders if he's bearing the eternity of our torment on our behalf so that we, the ungodly, might never bear it? Jesus wasn't just annihilated on the cross, he endured the full measure of God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. A doctrine falling on hard times in our Bible-dismissing world. Isn't it good to be warned in advance that there's going to be angels flying, proclaiming the gospel right up to the last moment across all the nations? Fear God and give him glory. Change your identity. I'm saying that to any person in this room right now who does not know the joy of worshiping the living God through Jesus Christ. Fear God and give him glory. Change your identity. Turn from who you were and become who you are in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. And the angel will say, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all her great sin and all the the mad wine she made her followers to drink. Fallen is every evil structure. Praise God's holy name. And right will be made every wrong because of his absolute justice and his glory, the glory so many are so offended by and so bored by and so quick to dismiss, that glory will be vindicated by the eternal torment of all those who've rejected it. How sweet it is, that this passage is written in our Bibles and told to us long before it happens so that you and I might talk this way to each other and pray for each other. And we might take every imperative in the Bible and say, I'm gonna do everything I can possibly do to make sure that me and my family and the people I know and love and the people in this church are encouraged to stay faithful to the very end, to stay white hot, to stay in the body and in service and in ministry and confessing their sins to one another and caring for one another and loving one another and standing arms linked, harnessed together saying, I'm with you and you're with me and I'm going to help keep you and you're going to help keep me and we're going to make it to the end because God's promises are faithful. He will endure to the end and he will enable us to endure to the end. So verse 12 says, here's a call for endurance. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Here's what endurance means. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but what I want so desperately is people in my life who help me keep the commandments of God and keep them from a position of faith in Jesus, not out of some guilt or shame or duty, but rather pure joy in Jesus causing me to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to live my life for you. It's going to get harder, not easier, to live for Christ, keeping his commandments, enduring with a white-hot faith, and keeping the faith of Jesus but it's sweet. It's good. It's so strong. It's so kind. It's, it's just like Jesus comes with the power of the Holy Spirit to say to John when he's in this vision in, on his exiled island of Patmos, and he's writing this book of Revelation, not just for the seven churches, but for every church ever since then, including some little tiny corner church tucked away in Proctor, Duluth, Minnesota, like us. And he says, I'm going to give you blessings look here I'm going to speak verse 13 is the voice of Jesus when you when when the book of Revelation points a voice from heaven it's always talking about the voice of Jesus and I heard a voice from heaven saying so this is the lamb who's receiving all worship and and all these angels are flying overhead midair pronouncing these victories of sober warning and reality calling for repentance and the lamb is coming as it were to speak to the church He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the faith family at the landing, and he says to John, write this down. Here's what I want to say to everybody who's scared about what the end will mean for them or for their family. Write this down. Blessed, happy, Macarioi, blessed and happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Even if your children or you or your spouse or your parents die in the Lord They're blessed. Do you know anybody who's died in the Lord? Are you ready to die in the Lord when you die? You're blessed. You're happy. Why? Because you get to go to be with Jesus. For to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You get a rest that you've been yearning for your whole life. You get a quietness of mind. You get a steadiness of soul. You get an orderliness of emotions. You get an honor and strength and, and posture of body and a perfection of all your relationships and a settling of all your past and a brightness to all your future that comes from Christ. And he says, that's what I mean when I say, you're blessed, you who die in the Lord. We're all going to die. The question isn't whether we're going to die. One out of every one person dies. Big deal. It's, do you die in the Lord, blessed, knowing that you're going to find it gain for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? And then, as if that blessing wasn't enough, the Spirit pipes up, and he says the same thing. Jesus talks, the Spirit talks. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, That they, those who die in the Lord, may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Offering of rest. Rest in all the fights against unbelief. Rest in all the fights against your own flesh. Rest in all the battles, even with the church and structures of the church. Rest, rest, rest. That's what the Spirit holds out. Some of you want that more than you can possibly say right now. What does this last line mean for their deeds follow them? It doesn't mean you get into heaven by the earning of your good deeds, by the fact that you're a person of love. It doesn't mean that you got in by grace, but you have to stay in somehow by doing good deeds. No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is these deeds that follow them, that word follow is all important. The deeds come behind you as a reputation showing that you were a genuine believer. Your life overflowed with the fruit, the evidence, the confirming proof that you were, in fact, given a new identity, a new mark on your forehead, a new mark on your hand. Let me help you feel this as I close and we prepare for the Lord's table. You remember when two women came to King Solomon in 1 Kings 3? God had given Solomon wisdom. They were fighting over a baby. Do You remember that? Solomon says, give me a sword. I'm going to cut the baby in half. Give one half to one woman, one half to the other. One woman pipes up and says, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. The other woman said... He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Solomon knew immediately who the child's mother was. How did he know? He knew immediately who the child's mother was, not because the woman who said, give the child whole and healthy and well to the other woman, this woman trying to kidnap my child from me and use Solomon and the structures of the government to lie and say she's his child when she knows she's not. She rolled over on hers and killed hers. She wants mine to replace her pain. Yet I'd rather my child be alive and well and not cut in half, but given to this woman rather than die. Solomon doesn't say, oh, you, the one who spoke the sacrificial love for the child, you earned motherhood. No, 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 he doesn't say that at all. He says, your love reveals you are already her mother. You are already her mother. That's your identity. It's all over your forehead. It's all over your hand. The question isn't, will our deeds follow us as a basis for getting into heaven? Oh, no. Christ died on the cross, and his deeds are the basis for which we get into heaven. The only question is, how will our love deeds, who reveal who we are, follow us and give God glory? So when you come to this table right now as a believer... You come to this table not because you've earned a place at the table. Oh, no. Jesus welcomes you to this table if on his basis of his death on the cross, his work has earned you your standing. If his death and resurrection is your only hope and stay, if his righteousness is the only righteousness you're trusting in, then come to this table. Come and receive as the elders serve you this cup and this bread, the final paragraph I would read to leave lingering in your ears comes from godly men 500 years ago who wanted to speak this truth that I'm laboring so hard to communicate to you and they did it better than I could. To whom do I belong? I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Would you pray with me? Ready us now to live for you, Lord, out of a pondering of Revelation 14, broken and weak and flawed as it is, yet your word, perfect and flawless, powerful and alive, authoritative, sufficient, and clear. We're happy to confess our weakness and confess the perfect sufficiency of your Holy Word at the same time. We come resting, and yet we come labor-ready labor, labor ready and eager to serve. We come marked with the Father and the Son on our hand and forehead, and we come ready to worship. And we come ready to take of the cup and of the bread, knowing full well that you bore the cup of the Father's wrath on our behalf. So we drink this cup now, not as wrath, but as grace. When we come to you, Lord, we know all we deserve to receive from you is wrath. And yet because of this cup and this bread, all we receive from you is mercy. You are doing wonderful things in the hearts of your people in this room and in my heart. And I am so thankful that your word is clear as to the eternal stakes of the business of heaven and the business of the gospel. I pray that you would give the weight and the glory and the mass to our souls to receive from you. That the heaviest, sweetest, strongest thing we've encountered today is you. And the greatest thing of our lives and of this church and of our families is you. And the greatest person we want to introduce to a lost and hell-bent world is you. Receive us now to the table, Lord, and serve us, ministering to us the great power of your word. And now in delicious, tasty form, this bread and this cup, reminding us of how sweet it is to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.